this festive season, make sure you stock up on Ring devices, which range from video doorbells to alarm and cameras. These easy-to-install smart home security products will give you peace of mind while you're away, as you can see, hear, and talk to visitors from anywhere. Ring's products are available at Take-A-Lot, Builders Warehouse, Incredible Connection, Vodacom, and Leroy Merlin. Because with Ring, you're always home. Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to the next bonus episode in a series of bonuses I'm releasing this December to thank you, True Crime South Africa listeners, for your amazing support throughout the year. I've had the privilege of being able to interview some pretty incredible people this year, thanks to the lovely folks over at CBS Justice. All of these interviews have been included at the end of full case episodes, so I thought, in case you missed them, or even if you didn't, I'd put them into an omnibus of sorts for you to enjoy. Never in my wildest dreams did I think I'd have the honour of chatting with international crime fighters like Dr. Richard Shepard or the incredible Jackie Moulton. So a huge thank you goes out to CBS Justice for their support this year, as well as making these interviews happen. So let's get into it. Dr. Richard Shepard. As I mentioned in the beginning of the episode, I had the absolute pleasure of interviewing Dr. Richard Shepard, one of the world's leading forensic pathologists who's performed more than 23,000 autopsies. Dr. Shepard worked on some very high-profile cases, including the Hungerford Massacre, the death of Princess Diana, and the inquiry into the serial killer Harold Shipman. He's also an author and the host of the brand-new CBS Justice original series, The Truth About My Murder. With this case, having shown the power of the forensic pathologist in revealing the truth about Lucky's murder, I thought it apt to have my interview with Dr. Shepard placed here. So here's my chat with Dr. Richard Shepard. Dr. Shepard is uniquely placed, considering his long tenure as a forensic pathologist, is to have seen the developments of the science. He mentioned in one interview I listened to that when he started working as a pathologist, the rules on scenes were simply put your hands in your pockets and don't leave fingerprints. And today that is very different. I asked Dr. Shepard what his experience had been of how the science of forensic medicine has changed from when he first started practicing until he retired. Yeah, I mean, I th there's two things here. There's the forensic pathology, which in a sense, the body hasn't changed. So how we examine it really hasn't changed much until the last few years. But I'll come to that. Forensic science has changed beyond all recognition. And so the examination of the scene, 
and the body looking for what we call trace evidence. These are you know, hairs and blood spots and fibers, you know, soil samples, pollen. All of these things have become so important in the investigation of a serious offense, whether it's a murder or anything else. And as a result, the people that go to look at the body, go to the scene, have to protect the scene from themselves. They're not protecting themselves from the scene. This is why they wear, wear the white suits. They have gloves on. They have masks. And all of these things, when I first started out, were just not important because forensic science, uh, they could detect fingerprints uh, and it would cost me a bottle of whiskey if anyone ever found one of my fingerprints at the scene. So I was determined that didn't happen. But that was that was the real concern. Uh, we were more concerned about protecting ourselves against blood and infections from the scene now it's turned around but forensic science is so powerful now um we have to be very careful forensic medicine as i say didn't hasn't changed a lot until now the development of ct scans and mri scans which have really allowed us to investigate the body before we even start the post-mortem and that's been a huge step forward I thought it was quite important that Dr. Shepard had pointed out the distinction between forensic science and forensic medicine, because they really are two very different things. Yes. I mean, they, they, they run parallel, but you know, we, we've been through a phase where forensic science has developed and changed so much. Uh, but as I say, the, the human body stayed pretty static. So, you know, we, we have a good system for examining it. Why, why change it if it's not broke? Dr. Shepard mentioned scans that are now used in autopsies. And when you watch the series The Truth About My Murder, you'll see Dr. Shepard uses digital autopsy tools to show viewers how pathologists would have helped solve the cases being discussed. There are a few facilities in the UK that have this technology, but in my research I also noted that there was a bit of pushback against it. I asked Dr. Shepard what his experience has been of the technology and if he thinks it will one day completely take over from physical autopsies. No, I, I, I think it is using CT scans is something that's happened in particular in Melbourne, in Australia, the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine for decades now. And it's a really useful tool, but it has to be used in the correct way. It's used uh, there and now increasingly in the UK and America and other places too, to try and understand why someone has died from natural causes. So we're not talking about accidents. We're not talking about murders. We're talking about being able to make a decision to say we do not need to do an autopsy on this body because we have the results. Let me take a simple example. The aorta, the main blood vessel of the body, as you get older, it can get weakened, it can develop an aneurysm which can burst, and that can cause a sudden death. And that can easily be seen on a CT scan. And so we can save the family distress, we can save work for the mortuary staff if we can see that, and it allows a diversion of that body away from having a full autopsy. So it can be really useful for that. Um, but some forensic pathologists, some pathologists don't like it because they think the radiologists are muscling in on their field, which clearly isn't true. But in terms of accidents, in terms of murders, in terms of trauma, it is a fantastically powerful 
technique to be able to monitor, to document, to get data, even before we start the post-mortem. So it can give us the guide, the help. And on that area, the forensic area, the suspicious death, the murder, it is so powerful and so helpful. I asked Dr. Shepard whether, to his knowledge, there'd been any issue with courts accepting digital autopsy evidence in criminal cases. And none that I'm aware of. Uh, I think because it is a well-established in clinical medicine, it is so well-established how the data is saved, how it's recorded, how it's transferred is well. So I'm sure there will come a challenge, if you see what I mean, because that's what happens when there's the interface between medicine and the law. There will come a challenge, I'm sure. But at the moment, it's been proven to be so useful. Um, and when we had uh, in England, there was a case uh, a while ago of a man who was found injured by the side of the road. And it was thought that a truck had gone past and hit his hit his head with the, you know, the wing mirror of the thing. No one took a lot of notice. He went into the hospital. He had a surgical operation that removed the damaged bit of skull and then he died. And then it became clear that actually it wasn't a truck. He'd been hit with a hammer. But by that time, the bit of skull had been thrown away. But from the CT scan, they were able to recover that data and using 3D printing, they were able to make the bit of skull and use that bit of evidence in court to convict someone. So, you know, it has a power far beyond anything that we can perhaps even think of now. How amazing is that story? In other interviews I listened to with Dr. Shepard, He'd spoken about the autopsies he'd done, which ended up being the victims of serial murderers. Forensic pathologists are often uniquely placed to see the similarities in cases and identify those. I asked Dr. Shepard if he could explain how he may have experienced the similarities and progression in these post-mortems of the victims of serial murderers. I mean, I, I, I've not been involved directly in many, but the one I have been involved in is the case of a, a lady called Rachel Nickel, who was murdered on a, a, in a, a common, a, a park area in South London when she was out walking with her young young son. I think he was less than two years old. She was stabbed multiple times. But it was only later on that I, I was examining uh, the body of someone else. And I said, you know, this is so similar. It's a young le- young woman with a child, only this time in a house with a child who both of them had been murdered. And I said, you know, this is so similar. There needs to be a link because the murder of Rachel was so unusual. You know, I'm, I'm no murder is routine, but there are patterns that you see time and time again. And remember, you're, you're much more likely to be murdered by a member of your family or a relative than, than anyone else in the world. So, you know, look at that carefully when you go home tonight. But it it is, you know, this is just so unusual, a young woman stabbed to death on a in a parkland area. And it's these unusual cases. So the linking in, but of course, serial killers change. Serial killers alter what they do. They discover that they got enjoyment out of that bit of the murder, but they didn't get enjoyment out of the other bit of the murder. And so it it changes. Uh, And Mm -hmm. spotting that can sometimes be easy, can sometimes be hard. I was very interested to discover that Dr. Shepard was involved in the inquiry conducted into the serial murders committed by another more infamous doctor, Dr. Harold Shipman. 
Shipman, of course, is believed to have been the most prolific serial killer of all time. He was a medical doctor who murdered an estimated 250 of his most elderly patients, in many cases defrauding the victims by changing their wills or stealing from them in some other way before injecting them with deadly substances. I asked Dr. Shepard whether he could tell us about his involvement in that case. I mean, in in English law, there's the prosecution and the defence, and the defence will almost always employ a pathologist to advise them. And that was my role with Harold Shipman. I acted as not as the prosecution pathologist, but as the defence pathologist. So I got to see many of the postmortems, and I got to understand a lot of what was going on. The consultant work is a lot of what's been keeping Dr. Shepard busy since he officially retired from work as a forensic pathologist. There's a finite line, I think, when you stop working on a a very regular basis, you know, a day-by-day basis. I think I'm conscious that I have to be aware of skill fade if I'm not doing it all the time. And now it is a number of years since I stopped doing full-time work. And so I'm doing less and less advice, working for the defence, advising coroners, advising governments and things like that. But it is it is less because I've got I have so much more interesting things to do, like flying my planes and keeping my bees, which is much more fun. And (laughs) less nobody shouts at me when I'm doing them. (laughs) Dr. Shepard has worked on many high profile cases, but in another interview I listened to, he said that the most interesting cases he's worked on are actually not the most high-profile ones. I asked him which cases do stand out to him as the most interesting of his career. The high-profile ones are always interesting because yeah. there's 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 lots going on. But often pathologically, they're not they are not the most difficult. Um, you know, when you, when you have a, a pop star or an actress or an actor dead in a hotel, that's pretty sure it's going to be drugs and alcohol. You know, the story of why they did it is much more sad and interesting than how they did it. Um, it it's difficult to pinpoint. One case, I mean, I talk in, in my first book, Unnatural Causes, about the case of a girl called Alana, who died from epilepsy, uh, died suddenly, and for her parents' point of view anyway, surprisingly overnight from epilepsy. And I think those cases are interesting because the diagnosis was a bit difficult. It was a bit unusual. But also talking to her parents, I was able to explain to them what had happened and how it had happened. And I hope give them an understanding that would enable them to begin a really difficult journey of coming to terms with the loss of their young daughter. And so they say that you know, the, the, the fascinating cases are often these quiet ones where I've sat in a room with you know, a wife or a son or a, a mum and a dad. And we've talked about what's gone on. I've learned about what they thought about their relative, you know, and, and we've but I hope I've given them with compassion, that ability to begin to move on. I can't take them through grieving, but I can at least help them to start the grieving with certain knowledge. And it's always true in medicine that the fantasies people have are 99.9% worse than the reality of what actually happened. And so rooting them, grounding them in the reality can be quite hard, but it's a far better place to start that process of grieving. I said to Dr. Shepard, as I have to the other forensic pathologists I've interviewed, 
that I think that this is almost one of the most important parts of their work. It's being able to gift that truth to a grieving family, because without it, their grief may be complicated and far more difficult to work through. I've always said that, I mean, truth becomes philosophically a slightly fuzzy subject when you go to court. What is the truth in court? Remember, you know, with an adversarial system, you have two truths and you have to sort of, well, I don't have to decide. I just have to work between the two. But it is, you know, being honest and decent to the best of your ability is the closest that you can get, I think, to the truth. Having interviewed two South African forensic pathologists on the podcast, Dr. Hestel van Staden and Dr. Ryan Blumenthal, and now speaking to Dr. Shepard with a different geographical perspective, I wanted to get a feel for how the UK environment is different from South Africa. In the UK, for instance, would a pathologist visit the scene of each unnatural death? And how common is it for detectives in suspected murder cases to attend an autopsy? No, a pathologist wouldn't necessarily attend all unnatural deaths. The the police will, and the level of their skills is a bit variable. Sometimes, of course, they're young police officers. Sometimes they're rather older sergeants or inspectors. And so the interpretation and understanding can be different. Um, a pathologist will often, but once again, not always, go to the scene of a suspected murder. Uh, you know, sometimes the paramedics have arrived, the body is gone. There's not a lot necessarily to see at that time. I mean, my view was the pathologist should always go to the scene, but you don't necessarily have to go before you do the postmortem. Uh, you can often go after the postmortem when you can move around more easily. You don't have to wear so much protective gear. You can see relationships and things of that sort. Mm-hmm. In terms of, uh, police officers attending potential murders post-mortems, yes, there's a very definite attendance as a group of people. We'll have a photographer, we'll have a crime scene investigator, we'll probably have an exhibits officer, we'll probably have the senior investigating officer, and maybe other people as well. So there's quite a group, a core group of people who will attend the post-mortem to see that. And that is, of course, something we know we struggle with in South Africa, and it's been pointed out as being a major problem. I said to Dr. Shepard that it seems really important for a detective to be there, to have that feedback loop of information going. And it's it's sort of constant going on. You know, the detective will, will be talking on his phone and he'll say, we've heard this, or I'll say, well, I found some injuries. I think really think when you're at the scene or near the scene, you should be telling your officers to look for a hammer or a knife or, you know, so there's this exchange of information the whole time, which can be really, really useful in Absolutely. moving the process on. Interestingly, I did ask Dr. Shepard whether he thought that sufficient resources would be available to cover all cases if a pathologist did need to attend all unnatural deaths in the United Kingdom. And he said, absolutely not. There would simply be far too many for their resources to support something like that. We we need a sort of a stepladder approach here. You know, the, the junior police officer will go to the scene and then they will, will, will they won't be happy. So they'll call their sergeant. He'll call his inspector and then it will work its way up. 
Unless, of, of course, there's obvious sounds of gunfire and there's someone dead on the street with bullet holes in them, then it's, you know, it's sort of obvious. But if a body is found in a house, it can take a while. And it often depends on the skill and experience of the people that go there. Uh, and certainly I've had cases where someone said, oh, it's, there's nothing that's worrying. And when I start the postmortem, it's clear that there obviously is. Uh, and, you know, maybe had I or someone more experienced gone to the scene, we would have seen that at the time. But that's training, that's skills and experience. Uh, and you can't criticise someone for not having had 40 years experience. In one of the episodes of The Truth About My Murder that I watched, which was about the murder of Peter Farker, Dr. Shepard mentions that in an autopsy, something may be identified as a cause of death, but it may not be the cause of death. So I asked him to explain the difference between those two concepts. Whenever you do a, a, a post-mortem examination, there are an, a number of things may be obvious. Peter Farker, I think, you know, was he was found lying next to a bottle of whiskey and, you know, he smelt of whiskey and he was said by his partner to be an alcoholic and he found him like this. And so, that, you know, there's lots of arrows pointing in one direction. Um, and as a result, you can get easily get led away down that track. In, in fact, that's probably not what happened to him. He was poisoned with other drugs that he'd been given. But if you're not thinking broadly, you have to be wary of being trapped. And it's all too easy uh, to go down the e go down the easy road. I mean, I have I'm also doing a tour around the United Kingdom again second time this year. And part of that tour is talking about how you look at the crime scene. And the words I use are think dirty. You have to think dirty. So even if it looks nice, the house is nice and tidy, everything's neat and straight. Uh, you know, is that what it should be like? Or has someone tied it up? You know, the body's in the bed. Have they have the body been moved? Has it been changed? Has it been altered? Have things been uh, hidden away? All of these things have to go through your mind, but they can only go through your mind once you have the skills and the experience to be able to step back uh, and think of them. So certainly it's true that, you know, if you seize upon the simple thing, you might miss something that's far more important. Dr. Shepard has worked on several mass murder incidents, including the Hungerford Massacre and the Bali bombings. I asked him how scenes like that with multiple fatalities are different, if at all, from cases of single fatalities, perhaps in the way he would approach them or the challenges involved. Well, they're, they're, they're all so different um you know hungerford was um a, a number of people but they were separated they were interspersed and in a sense it was also known how it was likely that each person was going to have died so they were all different but they were in a similar similar group and they were sort of separate from each other mm. uh, and so in terms of examining the scenes it was possible to pick one at a time and move around and do the postmortems one at a time to get the individual bits of information. With something like a bomb blast or a uh, a plane crash or things of that sort, you get lots of mingling, you get lots of things happening altogether, you get fire, you get large amounts of force and energy used and fragmentation. And world trade is perhaps the the best example or worst example of that. And so managing those scenes is very different. 
in in a bombing scene if it's you know when we managed um the london bombings it there were four separate ones but multiple fatalities at each and it's a question of it following it through in a careful progression not rushing in once once there is certainty that there is no one alive at the scene that requires help then i i always say slightly jokingly right stop go away and have a cup of tea and plan okay we always have plans we have plans that are made out of, you know in books that we can use for resilience but let's go away stop and think because every single case every single case is slightly different and you don't want to miss by rushing in and just going following the protocol bang 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 missing something that on this case is unusual and when in the london bombings what was unusual was there was a lot of blue plastic oh, that was it right. nothing terribly exciting people lots of people dead but the key thing was there was lots of blue plastic and it was present in each of the four scenes and that that was the forensic science clue pathologically it didn't mean a lot other than we identified it and were able to follow that through. And that turned out to be obviously part of the wrapping and where the wrapping had come from and who had handled it and where their fingerprints on it all became crucial. So managing mass disaster scenes is a real skill. Uh, in a, and we can also look at maybe um, Yugoslavia. We can look at what will come in Ukraine uh, You know, in the future. We can look at the tsunami, how you manage these things. It just takes skill and patience and, my goodness me, a lot of courage for the people that go in and do them as well. And, of course, in scenes where there's significant dismemberment of bodies, like the World Trade Center attacks, there's also the requirement that pieces of bodies need to be identified by DNA to actually, sadly, reassemble a human being from what's left. World Trade, there were an, an, a number of quite well-preserved bodies, but the vast majority was so fragmented by the forces uh, of the collapse of the buildings, more than the, the forces of the, the planes hitting the buildings. The forces of the collapse of the buildings were so massive that you know, we were talking 30,000, 40,000 fragments of human, you know, that, that could, some could, some could not be positively identified by DNA. And, and I think I read recently that there are still about, give or take, 1,500 people who no part of them has ever been recovered from world trade. So uh-huh. that's 1,500 families where there is, but there's not even a, a, a fragment mm. that can be positively identified. And they are now at the point where they do have quite a lot of tissue samples left but these tissue samples are so contaminated so small that were they to analyze them there would be nothing left at the end of it and there's once again at this stage do you want to go through that i mean do do you want to say to someone well yes actually we've now found one tiny fragment of your your husband but it's no longer there so there's nothing we can do with it. it it's a real issue and a problem. And this is this is where the compassion of forensic pathology has to come in and the care, the care for the courts, but the care for the families and the relatives. That has to go through what we do into how we communicate. Dr. Shepard's field of specialization is knife-related incidents. And I wondered whether that's because knife-related incidents are so common in the UK. Or is it just a cause of death he finds particularly interesting from a medical point of view? 
common common things occur commonly. And so, you know, in the UK, after Hungerford, after Dunblane shooting with the IRA, with gu- the, the ownership and the use of guns is incredibly restricted. Mm. And so gun-related crime is very, very minor part of the forensic pathologist's work. Whereas knife wounds, you know, with a gun, you can stand 100, 200 yards away, a mile away. I mean, if you're an American forces sniper, it's a kilometre away or whatever. You, you know, you don't need to get close. But with a knife, you actually have to be up close. You have to be within touching distance of that person. And that alters the dynamics and the psychology of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and knives are ubiquitous. Knives are all through the community. Uh, and, you know, I've seen so many cases of minor fights that have ended in the death of someone just a fragment of a second of anger a knife in someone's hand uh, and they're dead and i slightly slightly jokingly say that this is one of the design faults that i found with the human body that most of us are right-handed 85 percent or so right-handed the heart is on the left-hand side 99.9 percent of the time and so a right-handed person with a knife if they stab someone in front of them it's wow. there's a significant chance it's going to go through the heart and then it's just chance you know i've seen lots of people who've lived by a millimeter and i've seen far 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 too many people who've died because that millimeter has been the wrong side it's cut a major blood vessel it's cut into the heart it's done something awful and they've died and you know knife crime is is a real epidemic in in this country and you know we speak today uh, when there has been the first spree stabbing in the world that I'm aware of in Canada. On the day that I interviewed Dr. Shepard, one of the world's first mass fatality stabbing incidents had just taken place in Canada. Of course, mass murders with short-bladed weapons are incredibly rare because the possibility that the offender will be disarmed is high. In this case, it appears that there were two offenders – And sadly, many lost their lives in that incident. My final question for Dr. Shepard was about the international cases he's worked on. The Bali bombings, for instance, or the work he did on 9-11. I wondered how he found the experience of working in other countries. It was, well, I'd done some work in in, uh, Bermuda, which has got excellent facilities, a wonderful sort of hospital I went out to Nigeria following the death of a man called Chief Abiola. I was sent out with the United Nations team. Uh, all of the local hospitals refused to let us perform an examination in their facilities for political, possibly, I don't know, for whatever reasons. Uh, and so we ended up performing the postmortem in the operating theatre of a small private hospital. So, you know, you 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 work with what you have. Uh, you know, it, it, it's not always ideal, but if you wait, if you wait for the ideal in situations like this, it's it's never ever going to happen. Professor Paul Britton. I had the pleasure of interviewing Professor Paul Britton. Professor Britton is considered to be the pioneer of criminal profiling in the UK. He's an expert criminal profiler, having spent more than 20 years working as a consultant, clinical and and forensic psychologist, as well as being the former head of the Regional Forensic Psychology Service for Trent. 
He previously advised the Home Office and Association of Chief Police Officers Crime Committee on offender profiling and currently teaches clinical and forensic psychology at Birmingham City University. I could have picked Professor Britton's brain for days on end about many different cases, but the topic of our discussion for this interview was the CBS original documentary he's a part of called The Murder That Changed Britain. The documentary is truly incredible, and as far as I'm concerned, the learnings from it should really be applied to all legal systems around the world. The crux of the documentary is the investigation of a murder that happened in the UK in the early 90s. Rachel Nicole was walking on Wimbledon Common with her two-year-old son when she was sexually assaulted and stabbed 49 times. She died from her injuries, and coincidentally, you would have heard me mention this case in the interview I did with Dr. Richard Shepard, the British forensic pathologist who did the autopsy on another victim that would eventually be linked to Rachel's murder. That linkage, however, would only come after a huge amount of bungling from the British police, which led to the entrapments, arrest and charging of an innocent man in relation to Rachel's murder. Professor Britton was unwittingly drawn into this bungled investigation, and for the first time in the CBS documentary, He tells the truth behind this miscarriage of justice, which for decades has been framed as his responsibility. The documentary is absolutely fascinating and I highly recommend it. So without further ado, let's get into my interview with Professor Paul Britton. You've had an incredibly long and esteemed career in various roles as a forensic psychologist and you're perhaps uniquely placed to have observed how the understanding of psychologically motivated crimes has changed over the years. What are some of the major changes you've seen in terms of how law enforcement, and perhaps the public, view such crimes and offenders now, as opposed to in the 1980s, when you were just introducing criminal profiling to the United Kingdom? That's an interesting question. Um, When I first was asked to help the police, at at that stage, it it was necessary to help them to understand the psychological basis of motivation of these sorts of perpetrators, of the victims as well. And an important part of helping them to move forward was putting that in very plain language and almost holding hands through interview processes. Now, I was fortunate enough to be asked to go to the police staff college at Browns Hill um, from time to time, and that education has now seeped in. So we're now in a position where psychological insight is going into the police service, into the detective service, really from the beginning, and I think that's important. As far as the general public are concerned, I think it's slightly different. I think that from the contact I have had, very often people do want to understand what it is that's happened. And there is a change that I think is important. In the beginning, the focus was very much on the perpetrator, understanding and catching the perpetrator. Now, in the way that I work, understanding the perpetrator begins with understanding the victim. 
knowing the victim, understanding the, why was this victim, if it's a woman, why was she chosen? What made her special to this perpetrator? And I think it's the focus on the victim now that has become so much more important over the years with the public. And I think that is connected with, I'm not saying it's a part of why it happened, but it's certainly part of the growth of seeing women as more than just straw figures. I, I was fortunate enough years ago to, to, to have an award. And I remember saying on stage to the assembled body of writers and all of the rest of it, please don't show your victims as straw people. Because so very often, they were simply the vehicle for us to meet this terrible offender. And for me, the world goes the other way around. I have to know, and the people are now much more concerned with understanding the victim. So very often, it's a lady, a woman of uh, one age or another. And I think the more you come to know them, the easier, the more important it is, not just to know the offender, but to set the motivational dry running that helps you to locate and take them into custody. I don't think I need to tell you that my brain started doing backflips as Professor Britton was answering this question and bringing across this concept of not having victims and particularly women seen as straw people or the straw man. This term is often used in a legal sense, but it's also used in other contexts, and it basically means an empty persona that's created for no other reason than to hold space or to allow the movement of other parts of a story. And I think for a long time in the press and the true crime content creation community, this is exactly what victims were. They were simply just present or mentioned in order to introduce the person the media or creator really wanted to talk about, the perpetrator. I do think this is changing. And I mentioned to Professor Britton that True Crime South Africa is, is victim-focused, and he was very pleased about that. Now, back to the interview. Firstly, I want to say that I think The Murder That Changed Britain is an incredibly important documentary, not just to the UK, but across the world. The concept of profiling is, of course, an important feature in the documentary, could you maybe give listeners an idea of what a criminal profile is and how it should be used as a tool? Well, for me, um, I remember, my origins are as a clinician. So I'm a National Health Service clinical psychologist by origin. And before that, I'm, I'm a, a psychologist trained in the university system. So it begins with the police saying, can you help us with this murder? We're stuck. And so I come then as a clinician to look at what's happened. And there were five key questions for me. Questions are simple, answers not so. First question was, what has happened? It sounds very easy. The problem is that people jump to the wrong conclusions early on. And so they believe that A has happened, that it's a, a murder where someone was let in, but in fact it wasn't. It turns out to have been a true murder but that the person gained entry in another method. And that's important. Then I want to know how. How was it done? What's the method? And in fine detail, and this again, when I teach psychologists in this area, 
I have to tell them you must be brave because so often you have to go against the tide. I remember sitting in a room of experts. Uh, I was the only psychologist. And the, 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 the opinion was that there were two offenders who had carried out this terrible assault and murder of a, a young girl. And when I went, I could not see two. I could only find evidence for one and a local one at that, completely running against all the other view. Now, the pressure was to think, stay quiet, you'll pick it up as you go along. But you can't do that. So you have to put forward what you've seen, what your professional opinion is. Remember, you may have a killer out there who's going to come again. And if you don't do your job properly, then it'll continue. The senior investigating officer took the view, all right, everyone, please go back to the beginning. Everyone do their work all over again. We'll meet again in a few days and see where we are. Now, when we came back, it turned out that each of the other areas of specialist opinion had changed their view. One of the most important markers of the two killer factor was a bite mark that was left on this poor young woman's breast. And the original view was the killer has to be kneeling beside her to have done this. And then the other part was there have to be two killers because the injury that happened to her, her sexual areas couldn't have been done at the same time as the injuries to her throat. So you have to have two. But when people went back, what was found was actually the bite mark was 180 degrees the other way up, and that the injuries to the poor girl's body could have been done by one person at more or less the same time. And that changed everything. And that meant that the psychological analysis became key. And one of the important parts was you're looking at somebody local, and that meant they could focus very narrowly. And as a consequence, they were able to arrest the offender very quickly. You mention in the documentary that profiles should be primarily used as an exclusionary tool. Would you say that using it to specifically include a suspect is a dangerous practice? One of the areas that has caused me extra effort is helping investigators to distinguish between those two, two factors. And the case that you're talking about, I think, is in the documentary, where at the beginning, the whole drive was to eliminate as well as to implicate. So you had to approach both even-handedly. It's easy for people to invest their emotion, their thinking in the wrong end of it, and you have to help them to come back. And that's been a big part of what I have done. Now, understand why. The reason why is because you're looking at men and women who are investigating who have two factors. One is they're not specialists in this area. But the second is they really do want to solve this. If they latch early onto what they think is the offender, it's so difficult to help them to keep looking at other possibilities. But mostly they do. When I interview individuals involved in forensic work from other countries, I always enjoy understanding the difference between how we work here and how they work and which version is, is perhaps better. I think we very much like to think that our systems here in South Africa are rudimentary and not world-class, but I don't always think that's the case. In South Africa, of course, 
Someone like Professor Britton would be part of the police service. He would be the rough equivalent of what Dr. Gerard Labuskakhny did when he was in the SAPS. And we don't use external consultants very much here. So I asked Professor Britton to confirm that in the UK, psychologists such as him would work as consultants to law enforcement, and he was not directly employed within the ranks of the police. I also wondered whether he thought that this was best practice, considering it might be the very reason he was seen by the police as a safe bet to shift blame onto in the Rachel Nickel case. Or is it more important to maintain that level of distance and separation that a consultant space brings? That's correct. I'm not a policeman. I'm a psychologist. Remember, in the early days, um, I worked as a a clinician, and it's only later that I was asked to move into the forensic service, which I came to manage in the end. But even in the forensic service, it was fully in the National Health Service, not the police. We've moved forward since then. Um, it, It was the case that the people giving advice tended, like me, to be from outside. I was asked by the British Home Office if I would review psychological profiling and its possible use in the police service here. And one of my uh, recommendations was that we should have a register of all people who offered this service and each case should be followed through and evaluated so that we could, if you like, know which tracks which people were best on. And that's been moved way forward now. And we have uh, policing degrees And the people who go on to them are very often, not always, very often psychologists. And so we have forensic psychology literally within policing. And I'm I'm fortunate enough to know a number of psychologists who head policing units in the UK. So the point you're making is really happening. And one of the factors, I don't know if you've ever heard of Catchem. I was privileged to be the the joint designer of the Catchem database. So a long time ago, a man called Duncan Bailey, Detective Chief Superintendent, he was the head of CID in Derbyshire. He had been tasked by his uh, police superiors, ACPO as they were then called, to look at this area and see if they couldn't bring something out of it. And I'd worked with Duncan on a number of offences and Duncan came to me and said, can we do this together? And okay, we did. But the point I'm making is that out of this came the Catchem database. And if I look at all of the work I've done over the years in forensic areas, I think Catchem is probably the most important piece. It's not glamorous. There's no, oh, you caught this one or you caught that one. But the Catchem database and the principles have been used now throughout policing to bring so many crimes to a proper conclusion. And I think it's a really useful tool. Catchem stands for Centralised Analytical Team Collating Homicide Expertise Management. It's a database containing details of, of the murders of women and girls under 21 years and boys under 17 years to assist investigators and profilers. Now, if you've listened to even a few Serial Offender episodes, you'll understand why this is so vital. And it really is a phenomenal achievement from Professor Britton. Back to the interview. 
I thought that it was really important that you pointed out that when you drew up your profile, you weren't doing so to match it to any given suspects, including Colin Stagg, but rather it was a picture of an unknown subject who'd killed Rachel Nicole, whomever that person may be. Do you think that there's a deep enough understanding of this distinct difference when people and maybe even the police think about criminal profiles as a tool? I, I think that the per, the point you're making is really important. Um, it It's perfectly clear and straightforward from my perspective, but it is key to helping people to understand it in the world of investigation. I can think of so many cases, um, obviously the one that dealt with um, Napa and Mr. Stagg, and also the kidnappings, the abductions of Michael Sands and others, where the focus has to be on the mind and the functioning of the perpetrator. And everything that I can say is about that person. And then one of the, the issues I, I suspect is that because that turns out to be such a good fit for a number of people, say two, sometimes the investigator might look at the wrong one. And part of my role is to pull people back and to say, no, let's let's look a little more carefully. You haven't got this or you haven't got that. And even if you had, and this is something that sometimes takes some, some grasping. If you have a person who 100% is a match for a psychological profile, even down to the sexual fantasies that you describe, that doesn't make them guilty. That's a step along the way. That's a reason not to exclude, but it doesn't mean this is the person. You still need the evidence that the court would want, that the Crown Prosecution Service needs to move forward. And helping folks to hang on to that can sometimes be a, be a task. I know from working with other psychologists who do forensic work that using a strong set of both professional and personal ethics as a guide for their work is vitally important. Do you feel like the Rachel Nicole case was one of the most testing of your ethics in your career, despite you having done everything you could at the time to get the best result possible? There were problems from a, a number of perspectives. The, the question that you've just put up is something that I asked right at the beginning. It's what about the ethics? What about the morality? Where are we going? And the opinion, that the very strong opinion of the investigators was this has been looked at at the highest levels in the Metropolitan Police and the Crown Prosecution Service. It sits right at the top of the Attorney General's watch list. Please be reassured, all of these things are looked at. And even then, my view was, that's good. Second thing is, we can only go forward involving me if we build in these very specific safeguards. So the question you're asking, absolutely important. If you're, I'm not sure if you're free to step away just from the Rachel and the Kell killing and look at the other killings that Napa we know is involved with. If I go back to the green chain rapes, which again was the same offender, I have one regret in that case. Um, I went through the psychological analysis, I went across it all, uh, and I presented my findings to the investigating team. It's a different team, 
and they simply chose to ignore it. Mm. Now, I, I knew as a psychologist that what I told them was accurate. And if only they did, as I had suggested, they would take the person into custody. And if I had one thing I could do again, it would be I would stand and bang on the door until they did it. It, it goes back to your earlier point. I'm not a policeman. Mm. I'm an external. I'm a psychologist. I can only say you've asked me to do this. This is what I'm offering. Please take it seriously. I think there are a few important points this documentary raises. And the first is how dangerous it can be to pathologize someone's sexual fantasies if they're different from your own or from what's considered to be the norm. Really, I think this case showed that this can not only cause great shame for the individual, which is unnecessary, but can, as in Colin Stagg's case, have a life-changing impact. Well, again, I, I think each of the points that you make are significant. I think the important thing to remain, remember here is that the sexual uh, psychological fantasies that we were talking about, although they are not unique, they are relatively uncommon. And so in terms of investigating, if you have someone who is producing this range of material, then it's worth looking further at them. Remember, simply having those fantasies does not make them guilty, but it doesn't eliminate them. And if you have someone who has no interest whatsoever in those sorts of materials, and it's important to remember that the, the person being investigated, Mr. Stagg in this case, was the person who introduced those strands. That was a key requirement. The police were not allowed to introduce anything like that. They could only respond to it once it had been introduced. Mm. The mere fact it's introduced is not sufficient to convict anybody. Yeah. What it is, it's something that says, look a little closer. Another important point that I think was raised is critical thinking and accurate reporting in the media and among other content creators. Do you think, given that perhaps the media were not privy to all the information they needed, that they could have done anything different in how they covered Rachel Nicole's case? Yes, I'm sure that they could. Um, there were so many factors that I think drew attention, not the least was on the day at the time that this poor woman was killed on Wimbledon Common, the commissioner of the Metropolitan Police's wife happened to be on the common. And in a sense, that is something that excited the media. So that was one thing. She was a very photogenic young lady. I don't know if you're familiar with um, a children's programme called The Wombles. Well, the Wombles of Wimbledon Common, they, they were associated with Wimbledon Common. So it was something else. Now, if you look at the murders of Samantha and Jasmine Bissett, also by Napa, not very far apart in terms of time, also looked at by me, also drawn to the police's attention for the same reason, those investigating officers could not get media attention to the case. You had a mother absolutely butchered in her own house, absolutely dreadful. The police photographer who had to go to the scene of the crime never came back to work after having looked at her. You had her little tiny child terribly 
digitally raped and murdered and dressed up to look as though she's asleep. A most awful killing. And yet the police could not get media attention. So the point that you're making is so accurate. And why was that? Well, as near as we can tell, one of the issues was that it had been suggested that the mother had some untoward habits, that she may have been going down a, a early stages of prostitution, but she wasn't. But that was enough. We have on the one hand this blonde-haired, blue-eyed, photogenic young lady photographed. We've got her. We're not, we can't spare the time to look at these other things. So your point, I think, is really important. And this happens so often, even in missing person cases. The minute there's the suggestion that the person may have had a mental health issue or a substance use disorder, the public and press interest decreases dramatically. Professor Britton weighs in with, with an anecdote from his career that highlights this point. I was asked to look at the murder of a young woman in Leicestershire, and she had been left in a very particular way at the roadside. She was naked. She had been sexually assaulted. She had been uh, left in a, in a hedgerow. Anyway, I dealt with this. I was able to give the police advice about her. The advice was she had worked as a, a prostitute. And then I was able to say, but look, I have seen this before. I was able to explain that in my personal um, work, I had dealt with another three women who had exactly the same presentation in different parts of the country, some in the Midlands, some not quite. And that led to what's called Operation Enigma here. And out of that, I think 200 unresolved murders, mostly dealing with working girls, ladies working as prostitutes, were found. And the view was that at least two or more serial offenders had been working on them. But they didn't really come to attention because of their working lives. And that is so sad. We were able to catch the man who had done the four that, that I mentioned, but um, I don't know about the others. I wanted to really commend you for being brave enough to essentially stand up to the police service in this case and put forward your version of the story, because I think there's so much to be learned from what happened here, and we wouldn't have known that if you hadn't come forward. If there's one lesson to be learned by law enforcement and perhaps other criminal profilers from this case, what would you think that should be? Well, there are several, really, but I suppose if there was just a one, I would be wanting to help management of crime, management of investigators to be much, much more intelligently and persistently driven. Mm. Um, this, this case falls down not because of the over-enthusiasm of investigators, really. The issue is that they weren't properly managed. I've worked on all sorts of cases over the years, and one of the things that really makes a difference is where you have an officer in overall charge of all the investigations who makes sure that each of the teams are doing their job properly, and I'm afraid that this seems to have got away from that. And that is my interview with Professor Paul Britton.
Louise Shorter. Coming up, I had the distinct pleasure of interviewing Louise Shorter, a UK investigative journalist who's helped to reveal some of the greatest miscarriages of justice in British criminal history. I chatted with Louise about her work, wrongful convictions in general, and her work on the CBS Justice series Wrongly Accused. Here's my interview with Louise. I think that the entire concept of someone being wrongfully accused and convicted of murder is a very uncomfortable topic for most members of the public, possibly because we'd like to believe, no matter what country we're in, that our justice system is infallible because it's supposed to be to protect us. I asked Louise what her experience has been with the public reaction to some of the cases she's helped to reveal as wrongful convictions. I think the most common reaction from the public is that they can't believe that this actually happened to somebody, to the to the individual, that they they think that that it's impossible for somebody for, for so many things to go so wrong in cases. And and so I think people sort of feel comfortable mostly with the sort of the idea that everything works pretty well. And and I have to say, I think by and large things do work pretty well. But in a system such as the criminal justice system, which has human beings at the heart of it, we are bound to have things that go wrong. And, and when we've got funding cuts and when we've when we've got resources which are really overstretched, then it's really highly likely, I think, and increasingly likely that something will go wrong with an investigation. So so I think that the public's reaction tends to be they can't believe it. And then when they then when they realize how things have happened, they become very anxious that we should make sure the system it, it puts things right. Um, a very wise chief constable of police said to me here in, in England one time that we police by consent in this country. And so we, you know, most people do do as they are told or as the law expects. Um, and that's how we do things. We, you know, we're, we're not a police state. But the trouble is that if if there is a, a general feeling that things aren't going quite as they should, not only that you might have innocent people that are being convicted, but also that the system isn't putting them right, isn't isn't correcting that, isn't quashing the conviction. Um, if, if that doesn't happen, then that fund- fundamentally it shakes people's confidence in the criminal justice system. And then what it, what is at stake there is is people just doing as they should, you know, through mm. police and by consent because they they don't trust the system. So so these cases, are, these stories are really important to tell. I think to make sure that that we we understand the responsibility that's placed on the criminal justice system to be properly resourced, to do thorough investigations, to make sure guilty people go to to prison them and that innocent people don't. I asked Louise, what got her into this field of work? Was there a pivotal moment or a case that convinced her that this was something she needed to do? Well, when I was growing up as a teenager, there was a television program on the BBC uh, throughout England and Wales, that were throughout Great Britain, where that was called Rough Justice, and it would it would carry out investigations on cases where somebody was in prison claiming they were innocent. And I used to watch that one as a teenager, and I just thought it was incredible that you could have journalists come along and and find all this stuff out, which the legal system and the police investigation and the, the trial hadn't managed to get quite right. So I so I thought that it was incredible that journalists could do that. And I just was really affected by the individual stories. And there were some really big 
big cases happening when I was a teenager. So we had the Birmingham Six and the Guildford Four, sort of political terrorism and sort of type cases where uh, people have been in prison for a long time and a lot of people believed that they were totally innocent. And there was, there, you would often see articles in newspapers, television programs, radio programs, people saying they're not, that they, they, you would even have the real, the real, uh, the people who were really guilty in those cases coming forward and saying that they'd done it, but still they would, those innocent people would stay in prison. And then there were also individual stories. There were people like cases like Stephen Kisco, which we feature in, in Wrongly Accused, um, who was, a lone man um, living at home with his mum, convicted of the rape and murder of a schoolgirl. And he he was a really, um, really tall, gentle giant of a guy. And he had this tiny, tiny Ukrainian mother who just did, couldn't believe, wouldn't accept that her lovely, gentle son would do something so horrific. And she just kept on fighting and fighting and trying to raise awareness. And so... There were cases like that that just kept being featured in the news in the news and through this programme, Rough Justice, that I thought was just incredible. Um, and so it was I was really inspired by that programme. And then and then something like 10 years later, I went and worked for the BBC in a totally different department in the accounts department, but just trying to get into programme making um, and then managed to sort of work my way across and, and get a foot in the door and started working for the TV programme, Rough Justice. And. And so I and so I was that was sort of my way in, really. So it was through. And I found that actually when I was when I was then a producer on on that BBC programme for uh, well, I was at the BBC for 16 years in, in all. But I very often will find that I would phone an expert or phone a, a, a barrister or somebody I was trying to get to do some work, probably without getting paid for the benefit of the case. And they would very often know rough justice this and that was a sort of a way to open doors and get people Mm. to do stuff so it did a huge amount of good in 2010 when the organization that louise shorty used to work for called inside justice was established i wondered what environment was that she was coming into with this organization was anyone else doing this work and how was the organization and what it stood for received well, when I I left the BBC and and was then approached by by somebody who was an editor of a of a newspaper for prisoners um, called Inside Time, and that the, he the editor approached me and asked if I would write an article about the fact the BBC had axed this program of justice and all the other media programs that have been around at that time over here were they'd all been axed one by one they'd gone. And so there were, and so there was nobody in the media that was really doing that kind of work. And, and this newspaper editor said to me, "Well, where, where do people go now? Where, where do prisoners go if they are protesting their innocence? Um, is there a media outlet where they can get this kind of uh, they get this kind of support and help and exposure?" Um, and there wasn't. And so he he knew the charity world, and he said to me, "I think we should set up a charity and try and provide that that service to people." I thought he was completely nuts, to be honest. I thought I couldn't believe that a trust or a foundation foundation would give money to to helping people you know people in prison that claim they're innocent I just couldn't see that you could get funding but we did get it it took us nearly three years but we did manage to get the the funding um and I think the the sort of general the, the the general reaction from people was one of gratitude and relief that there was going to be a charity again that would provide that kind of free legal expertise and free scientific expertise we had quite a big shift over here at, at that stage. So we used to have something called the Forensic Science Service, which was the national forensic provision um, 
full of, you know, just 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 chuck a block full of experts who would do forensic work for defence teams as well as the prosecution. And it was internationally renowned. It was world leading in terms of its expertise and its research. And it was just a fantastic um, body. But it was axed. It was the, the funding was cut by government and it was axed. It was closed, you know, within a very short period of time. And so that meant that a lot of people working in the defence world just couldn't get access to forensic scientists because they were working for labs that only did police work. You know, there's not a lot of money in defence work. So it's just very hard to find forensic help if you are now, if you're sort of, you know, on the defendant's uh, side of a, of a trial. And so I think the establishment of the charity was really, really was, was, you know, greeted with a lot of relief by people that there was access to experts. But also I think there was certainly a... It's got harder and harder, in my view, to be able to do work now on wrongful convictions cases than it than it was five, ten, fifteen years ago. Mm. So, and I, so then now, when I started doing this work, which is twenty five years ago, I started doing miscarriage of justice work. And at that stage, you know, you could get a, you could get access to police exhibits. You could send them off to a forensic lab and, and get some new tests done. You know, you could pay for that work yourself for, for the for the prison for the, per- the person in prison mm. now most police forces they're sort of like their default position is not to release it anything mm. so it's got harder and harder here to actually get access to material and to be able to do testing so we're in a sort of quite so so relief i would say was the reaction from people that were working with prisoners and working on on for defendants but there's been a sort of a general closing down and restriction of what you can do in terms by it, 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 as far as the authorities go. I wondered how Louisa decided which cases to take on and which people they were unable to assist. Well, I always think that the, what you need to do is to get a really clear idea of all of the evidence that was there at the trial. You know, not, don't just listen to what the person in prison is telling you, but get make sure you get a really clear, objective view of everything. And and the single most important thing you need to do, in my view, is to identify what is the very best piece of evidence that the prosecution had. You know, what is their strongest? What is the strongest thing the prosecution had against the person in prison? Because because if because you you know, you need to work out basically whether or not the person who says they're innocent is just it is whether there might be any truth in it or whether they're wasting your time because everybody in prison says they're innocent you know <laughs> everybody is going to use that line so the so the, the trick is to is to sort of try and work out who might actually be tra- telling the truth so if you can identify the strongest piece of evidence that means that you can then work out whether or not that piece of evidence is good because if that piece of evidence really is strong and really is solid, then you probably don't want to spend your time and energy dealing with that case. There's probably a more deserving case. So, so that, that's the way I go about it. You know, let's let's sort of see how this person got convicted. What's the best thing the prosecution had? Then test whether or not that evidence is solid. Is there real? Is there merit in that? Is that if they're relying on a DNA test for for something? Is that did they use the right DNA test? Is there a chance that it could have been contaminated? Is the DNA from something which actually looks suspicious but doesn't actually tell you whether the person committed the crime or not? Mm. You know, or was it on an item that was in the scene just as a sort of a secondary thing? You know, in, coincidentally rather than it being absolutely crucial to the murder itself or whatever it might be. So, so yeah, test the evidence and and then look to see. The next thing that 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 I always do, and that the charity inside justice also still does, is to identify what 
what could be done that wasn't done? You know, we've we've had a lot of funding cuts in term, particularly in terms of forensic science. Police police teams are really overstretched here, and so investigations may not have happened that should have done. So we always try and identify, you know, what if if you could run the case again, what piece of work should could be done that wasn't done, and was you know, and then maybe that piece of work wasn't done just because of funding, you know, not because of it being a good investigative reason. So then try and get that piece of work done. Although today we put a lot of stock in physical evidence and and the forensic sciences. We're also seeing many of these investigative techniques being proven to be essentially junk science. I wondered what Louise's experience had been with how significantly poor scientific investigation had contributed to wrongful convictions. I think that the way that the courts and the police deal with forensic science is is a, is a, is a difficulty. You know, forensic science can be the best the best thing, the best friend for a police investigation, but it can also go horribly wrong. And I, I think the real real difficulty is that there is a real disconnect, in my view, between the way that the law deals with forensic science and the way that forensic science deals with forensic science. So, forensic scientists they are they are open minded they think that that if you if you understand that something that we used to believe was true is actually not true we've got better knowledge now and actually that's not what the science tells you very often a very good scientist anyway will will believe that that's still valuable knowledge even if it knocks out what they previously thought what they knew they still believe that that is progress that new understanding that new learning is progress whereas i think our, the the law often has difficulty has problems with that because the law wants things to be to, to be it, you know the, the law sort of believes in this principle of finality so you have a trial and that should be the last thing and and we you know we we don't really want to have appeals in most cases mm-hmm. by and large you know the trial should be the last thing that happens and so so there is a disconnect, I think, between the way that the science and law deals with it. So I, I work on cases here where we can tell, we can show clearly, absolutely, that the way that the science was explained to a jury was wrong. They were given a false impression of what it meant. The scientists misled them at the time, maybe unwittingly, maybe because their knowledge wasn't there at the time. But nevertheless, the jury convicted on a false basis. But the but the Court of Appeal very often doesn't really want to deal with that because it worries about well, if we've you know, if we if we go back and we say that the jury was told that bit wrong in, in that case, then are we gonna have to do that in lots of cases? And are we gonna get loads of appeals? And are we gonna be overwhelmed? So it so the so look the legal process here um doesn't like dealing with science very often. I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm I, I should also say that we absolutely do have cases here where there is a belief that that science can tell you a certain thing and actually there just wasn't enough knowledge about it the, the, the first case that we show in wrongly accused is about um features this this particle science these all these tiny grains of stuff that were found on a van seat that were also on her on the victim's skirt and so the finding of these particle types in two locations the scientist said meant that she'd been in that van. And that was just nonsense. There was no scientific basis to that. And eventually, you know, the the court did put it right and they got the conviction quashed, but not before the guys had spent six years in prison. So there is, you know, it's it's a difficult thing, I think, because because a a scientist, an expert, a forensic scientist or an expert in anything, whether they're an expert in CCTV or cell site evidence or whatever it might be, they can stand up in court 
um, and they can give an opinion based on the fact that they are an expert. So, so they are in a special category where they can they they're allowed to say what they think of something. They can give their opinion. Most other categories of witnesses can't do that. So, uh, somebody who sees something, they can't say what they thought it meant. They can just say what they saw. An expert is in a special category, and so that means that we have to be very, very careful that those experts are talking about you know something that, that is a really on a really good solid foundation. And I think I think too often they don't, and that they, they that it's not clear they're not on a solid scientific basis, and that's really dangerous. I asked Louise what her experience has been of the jury system. Does she think that the system contributes or reduces possible wrongful convictions, or does it play no role at all? You know, we have a jury system here in England and Wales of where we have 12 members of the jury. And the idea being that we will balance out any biases between, you know, by having such a sort of a, a, a big pool. Um, we, we can convict on a majority of 10 to 2. Um, and I think that, you know, I, I, I worry about that sometimes. I have certainly seen, I, I have not done... Sorry, let me go back. I have certainly got a feeling, a sense over 25 years of doing these kind of cases that there are occasions when juries reach verdicts on a majority on a Friday afternoon before, you know, I've had cases where there was a big sporting fixture that was about to start and the jury suddenly reached a 10, you know, a majority verdict just before that started. Or, you know, so I, I worry about about juries you know, wanting to get out of the room and just wanting it to be over. And so somebody buckles and they, they come in then with a, um, a, you know, majority verdict. I worked on a case some years ago where a guy is in prison currently for serving a minimum of 30 years for murders. Um, and I made a, did an investigation about his case and, and put out a program where we spoke to the foreman of the jury who said, if I if I had heard the evidence that you found in your investigation now, I would never have convicted. So that would have taken it to a nine three. And then another juror came forward after that and said, you know, I too wouldn't have convicted if I know what I know now. So that would have taken it to eight four. But the guy's still in prison. He's still inside. So I so uh, you know I I think by and large I think juries are a good system. I you know I think it's a it's mm. a good system. But I I worry about that it you know just just pushing somebody when it gets to a majority to to buckle and then you've got your majority and that's it the, the life sentence is in but one other thing i'd just like to say about jurors is that um i i listened to a talk by by a law professor one time and he was saying that we we um he'd asked for a kind of a a show of hands in the audience to to how what does sure mean when you have to reach a verdict of being sure so we we used to have something here called you'd, you'd have to be, be guilty beyond a reasonable doubt that's what it's always been traditionally been called it's we've now changed it over here to that you have to be sure of guilt mm. so it's the same thing beyond you know what, what does it mean how, how what, what does sure mean what, what does beyond a reasonable doubt mean so this law professor asked the audience for what kind of percentage do you think it means to be sure now if I was standing trial for life and I you know I wanted people to be sure I would want that to be certainly over 95 percent more like 98 percent up in that kind of a he found that his audience thought thought that their average was around about 85 percent now I find it horrifying and really shocking that juries might be convicting on the basis 
you know, of of that kind of that those kind of odds. It's become very clear over the years across the world that no justice system is exempt from a certain level of favour towards those with resources and historic racial or other privilege. I wondered what Louise's experience in the UK had been with this. Does money and other forms of privilege automatically buy you a better experience with the justice system? I think it's certainly true to say, without a shadow of a doubt, that people who are less able to, you know, whether it's through resources or their own intellect or whatever it might be, there are people who are disadvantaged are in life are hugely disadvantaged by by the criminal justice system. They are, they're vulnerable, aren't they? You know, they are to the you know whether it's that they can't properly express themselves during the interview, the police interview, whether they can't, whether they are fighting prejudices in terms of there being an assumption that if you look a certain way or you behave in a certain way or you come from a certain background that you are likely to be guilty of this crime to not being able to gather the support and the resource that you need to get people on your side to be able to help you huge injustices that that are were have happened throughout our history and I'm sad to say are still alive and, and present today mm. When anyone is killed, we automatically look at those closest to them, and often that includes the spouse or intimate partner of the victim. In the first episode of Wrongly Accused, Louise and the other experts acknowledge that this is the natural and logical progression of an investigation. I wondered how often Louise saw that blinkered focus on the partner becoming problematic and contributing to wrongful convictions. I think it's common and I think it's understandable to an extent because, you know, if, if women are murdered, then then most of those women are murdered by somebody who is is known to them. You know, it's if that, that's the sad truth of the of, of who's going to likely to to be attacking and murdering a woman. Is it somebody who's in her life currently or was in her life, you know, before? So it's kind of understandable, I suppose, that an investigation focuses in that way, but. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think in our, that first case that we feature in Mongley Accused, it was, it, there was a belief by the police that if it wasn't the boyfriend who was with her on the night she went missing, then it had to be a random stranger. And they just didn't believe that that was likely. But that's who it turned out to be. In the case that we um, feature where the guy, where Timothy Evans, where he was hanged, um, he was the husband of the of the woman who was, was found dead. You know, it just turned out there was a serial killer living in in the same house in a different flat. And with the Joanna Yates case that we feature among the accused, there was a young woman who was murdered and and it it, it turned out it, it was it was a um, a man who was living in the neighboring flat uh, who was the real killer. Um but they but the police zoned in on on the landlord who lived in the same building because they thought that he was peculiar. They didn't they and that that came that case came down to the way he presented. I mean, in that case, he was a, a highly intelligent man, a really compassionate man, a man who had been involved in all kinds of um, um sort of safe neighborhood schemes involving the police and communities. You know, he was a pair of the local community. Um, but the police thought he was odd. And so they they really honed in on him. And I think I think in his case, it was a sort of strange, the strange sort of flip of the of truth in that one was that 
normally it's somebody who's quite vulnerable and can't really express themselves. In his case, he was very intelligent and he was able to speak back to the police and, you know, and to, to, um, to challenge them about, about the assumptions they were making. And I think that riled them. I think it, it, you know, got under their skin and they, they thought that that was odd behavior for somebody to be, to, to, to do that with. But yeah, it, it's, it's, um, it, very often it's a blink of an investigation that, that leads police down the wrong path. I find it interesting to compare other legal systems to ours in South Africa. And I've noticed that many justice systems around the world focus on convictions and have very few avenues for exoneration processes beyond limited appeals. I asked Louise whether she feels that the UK allows more for the possibility of wrongful convictions or does their own system also need to be more robust? We, we have here in, in England and Wales, we have something called the Criminal Cases Review Commission, the CCRC which is a publicly funded body, um, which is uh, independent of government, uh, although government has a sort of government sponsoring department that makes sure that it's spending taxpayers' money appropriately, but its operations are dealt with independently. And that, that, that commission was set up in the late 90s. 1990s, when we had a, a rush of, of wrongful conviction cases that were suddenly being, people were being released here. But there was a, there was a collapsing confidence in the criminal justice system here because it was clear to everybody. And there was a lot of reporting that innocent people were, were in prison and the appeal system wasn't dealing with it appropriately. And so we had, we had hordes of people out on the street. There was a collapsing confidence, which, un, which really undermined the, the, the police's ability to do their, their job. Uh, because nobody believed that it was working properly, effectively. So the CCRC was set up, um, and that's a very good thing. You know, we have this uh, this formal body which has statutory legal powers to be able to go and get evidence and to be able to do new tests, and that's good. Then um, we, you know, we are we are advantaged here by having that. The difficulty is that it's that the funding has been really cut from it. Um, it's become uh, the organisation is sort of often criticised for not being really investigative enough. It, it sort of lacks investigative curiosity. So there's been quite a lot, lot of work done that's suggested that actually it doesn't it doesn't get out there and find stuff. It, it sort of wants to it wants to have evidence presented to it on a plate that's going to lead to an appeal. And there is a criticism that's quite often made currently, which is that unless it feels that if it does certain investigations, it will lead to an appeal, it won't bother doing the investigations. But very often in these cases, you don't know what you're going to find until you do it. And so to be to have to have a guarantee of an outcome that's going to lead to an appeal means that by and large, most stuff won't get done. So it, the, the, we, we do have a solution now post appeal for, for how people can get back again, get their get and get their cases, um, get their convictions quashed. But it is increasingly attracting criticism. And that that criticism is therefore undermining confidence in the criminal justice system again. So wow. we have we have something, but it's mm. it's it's starting to go wrong, I think. Donald McIntyre. Donald McIntyre is a renowned UK investigative journalist and criminologist. McIntyre appears in the CBS original Killer Evidence. 
In this interview, I chat with Donald about his work in investigative journalism, his undercover reporting, and his insights into investigations and the killer evidence he's seen come up in cases. Killer evidence focuses quite heavily on physical forensic evidence and crimes. In your early career as an investigative reporter, many of these forensic tools didn't exist or they were in their early stages. What's your experience been of how the process of criminal investigations has changed over the years as a result of these new forensic techniques being added to the arsenal? Well, that's a very good question because two things are revealed to the audience that I'm as old as a dinosaur. And secondly, it does hit, hit upon not only the work I did in the past, but also some of the cold cases I do now. So, so <laughs> well done, Nicole. No, it's a great question. And, and thank you for that. I think what's interesting is I just, um, on some of the cold, back in the day, in around the early 1990s, I was doing undercover investigations. Um, so as part of my own investigative stuff, and we were kind of, uh, we, we worked by ourselves, but I would say our covert and undercover standards and, and practices were higher than the police. We probably had more resources than the police. We went undercover in the world of fraudsters and, and um, uh, drug dealers and uh, uh, football hooligans and the fashion industry, to name, and we hit blue collar and white collar. And so then the evidence we were creating were not only traditional journalistic paper evidence, we were, we were investigating and gathering first-hand testimony, and we were following it and the usual rules around that would be your traditional American kind of application of rules. You don't really want to incite people to say anything that uh, they otherwise wouldn't do. You're not uh, paying or bribing people to say things that they wouldn't do. And the evidence has to be pretty uh, um, uh, pristine. The other thing about that is that uh, when we go to court and we often have got convictions on the basis of the evidence as kind of journalistic, we're not journalistic prosecutors, but inevitably in this arena, we often come uh, and, you know, work for the BBC and ITV and CBS Justice. But but in the early days, uh, we would assume a role because the defence teams would prosecute us in the in the witness box, but we would have no defence where we couldn't redact evidence, we couldn't have PII, public interest immunity stuff, where, where we could take away material, every expense, every email. It was the full-on Donald Trump disclosure from Congress. Nothing was hidden. So um, in that respect, my, my practice as an early investigator slash pseudo journalistic prosecutor, and that's, and that's a term I've just invented now, but I, mean, I reckon, I, talking to you, I understand that, that we were kind of in that prosecutorial role, but our evidence gathering was face-to-face testimony, and that's hugely persuasive. But the bar we placed was on video evidence. We, what you see is what you get, and that's a very strong and powerful weapon. At the time, the first, I think the very first conviction for uh, reliant upon uh, uh, for, uh, DNA, forensic DNA, was around 86 or 87, um, if I'm not mistaken. And so the first real murder that um, that I've been looking at, I mean, I'm look, just looking at a cold case murder of uh, Sophie Toscan de Plantier in 1996. I also did a lot of work on the murder of Stephen Lawrence uh, uh, at the same in the same uh, year, maybe it was, yeah, 1993, maybe. And uh, basically, uh, the involvement of DNA in that. In relation to the Sophie Toscan de Plante murder, where a suspect was convicted in France, and this took place in Cork, it was the murder of 
of a French film producer, hugely powerfully connected to the to the French uh, uh, political establishment and Mitterrand. And um, uh, the police, the Irish police at that stage came in and they they effectively focused on one man who volunteered his DNA in 1996, knowing the context of what that meant, but his DNA was never found in a brutal and graphic crime scene, and which basically, to my mind, said, listen, this guy must must be uh, innocent. But the standards of the uh, of the, the quality of that, you know, was so poor. I mean, really, it was kind of, you know, uh, prehistoric in terms of the evolution of crime. The Dean, in terms of the murder of Stephen Lawrence, which is, uh, became a landmark uh, uh, crime for uh, racial um, uh, injustice in terms of the institutional racism in the UK, and still percolates about police corruption and all of this in the UK. It, it took a friend of mine, Clive Driscoll, um, uh, that took until 2011 or 12 to finally get convictions and three million pounds worth of taxpayers' money to re-scrutinise and to uh, and to take the original material from the crime scene and then retest it and retest it. And that material had been tested many, many times. But in this respect, the most powerful the, uh, the most powerful tools, three million pounds worth, were suddenly were able to go at a very subatomic level and get micro specs of DNA and fibers to get a conviction in that case. Uh, I think there, in relation to the case which I have done a program on with Jim Sheridan, who's a kind of uh, a very esteemed documentary, I mean, a film producer and director. We did a film on the um, murder in the cottage on Sophie Toscan de Plantier and. Um, we're hoping that there is a new DNA um, investigations, but it does show that the that the evolution, not the cost. So the quality has risen, but the cost of those investigations are huge. And there's no doubt, apropos killer evidence, and our focus on um, uh, DNA and the forensic CSI specialists is that the people often forget that one of the biggest turning points in any investigation is the quantum. How much will this cost? And, and you know, you will say, well, every life is worth everything. Well, you can't spend three million pounds on a hope and a prayer. And because the, the Lawrence Inquiry and, and Clive Driscoll, um, Chief Superintendent Cl Clive Driscoll, um, because he bullied his way and often it's the police officers so the first thing is the cost so how do you get over that well that cost is only really very much available for unique and high profile and what they call signal crimes signal cases and signal crimes are those crimes that we associate that kind of have a transformative impact on the society beyond the murder of one young 18 year old you know sad as that is the murder of Stephen Lawrence transformed the rules and regulations at the workplace around all the UK. So it was a transformative case and three million pounds. It was unsolved for, for nearly uh, 15 years and uh, then three million pounds were spent on it. And, and so the cost is important, but the personality of the police officers who are engaging with some of the DNA companies and specialists are also crucial because Clive Driscoll, he could easily have said, well, we can't solve this. It's been DNA's, DNA to death tested. And he tells me this wonderful story uh, that uh, he had these top 
doctorate in um, some of these top, you know, in physiology and biology and forensic testing who were telling, these are guys who are Cambridge and Oxford degrees, saying, listen, I'm telling you, Clive, this is my expertise. We have done everything we, we, we need to do. There's no more to be done. And he would say, well, you know, I appreciate your doctorate from Harvard and from Cambridge, but I got a D in woodwork in my GCSE. And I'm a stupid cop. And I'm telling you, I'm the CIO, I'm the senior investigation officer, SIO, and we're doing it. That's it. And he, and he, and he also persuaded to force of character, um, Cressida Dick, the then commander at the Met, to, to uh, spend the money. So it's not just the, that the techniques have involved, it's also that the cost of it has involved, but also it, the, it shows the ecosystem and the persuasive ecosystem to work with um, your DNA specialist and your forensic specialist, your team, and have the force of character to know when to apply that, that, that pressure. We need the money now, this will solve it. But of course, if you take the three million pounds and you don't get a result, as likely as, you know, then of course you've lost your political and social uh, capital. And the next time you really need that money, uh, you mightn't have it. Um, so it's really interesting that people often forget the, the, the role of budget and personality and personnel in the battle against crime. Because, you know, if someone doesn't fight hard enough to, to pursue one line of inquiry or fight hard enough for a budgetary line, then those lines are not pursued. And they may very well be the lines that might um, solve the case. I think that leads quite well into my next question, which is, have you ever felt as though investigators rely too heavily on techniques like DNA? And do you think that this could perhaps make for a less effective investigation overall? Oh, that's a really good question because I think you're absolutely right. I think, I think there, very interestingly, there often is an over-reliance on the CSI to pull it in because officers come to the scene and, and I, and they, they decide and with reasonable intuition and experience and a gut feeling. And I'm a supporter of gut feeling because, you know, a gut feeling and intuition is built upon years of experience. So it's about using, it's using the back processes of your mind, synapses crackling, and they're saying, right, how do we, uh, and all their information experience distills into a theory or a couple of theories. And they say, well, I can say here, and they can do, like a bur experienced burglar walking down a suburban street, they know the landscape so well, they can know by the car outside the driveway where the key is placed. Is it placed under a milk bottle? Is it placed under the flower pot? Is there a back window going to be open? They, 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 there's a lot of presumed and, and experiential knowledge here. Same with the investigators. And, the pro and they can build a picture of what is a likely perpetrator and, and, and means of murder here. But that also, sometimes they get it wrong. Sometimes I think this is how it's going to happen. Surely with this entire landscape here, we are going to be able to pick out um, and, and uh, with the DNA, absolutely get the, uh, get the suspect. And in this case, uh, but sometimes that isn't the case. I'm reminded really interestingly, I've just finished a book called um, Million Ways uh, to Stay in the Run about a very infamous uh, murder uh, uh, over here, which which was um, uh, it, it was the murder of a uh, of a um, road rage suspect, Stephen Cameron, by Kenneth Noy, who had um, 
stabbed a policeman, but had, uh, and that was a case of self-defense and a very unusual case. In any case, he was the public enemy number one, and he got involved in a road rage case. Now, this is a classic case in point about um, how it, you interpret evidence initially. So, initially, the chief inspector, um, Nick Biddens, is on a golf course. He's in charge of all the murders in that area, and he gets a call on the golf course, blah, blah, blah. Murder, road rage incident, knife involved. There's about 30 or 40 witnesses. There's CCTV everywhere. He thinks it's a self-solver, right? Somebody's going to see. We're going to get a number, a car, CCTV, going to track it down. Likewise, the perpetrator, uh, Kenny Noy, thought, listen, Jesus, this is good of self-solver. There'll be witnesses, my car, blah, 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 everything, right? So what he did was the perpetrator immediately went home. He didn't think he died at first, but once he realized the guy had died, he immediately arranged his departure from the country. He got rid of the car, replaced his car with another car in a very clunky kind of way, got the car destroyed and fled and disappeared, right? So, um, but what actually happened was the CCTV cameras didn't work. The witnesses were, by and large, completely unreliable. The, 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 they never got the proper... His car might have been one of 20,000 Land Rovers or Range Rovers. So, in fact, and there was no DNA in the scene, and this was 1996. So there was actually everything that the perpetrator had assumed the police would have and everything that the police assumed they would have about the perpetrator and witnesses, it never happened. So if the perpetrator had actually done nothing, simply gone home and done nothing, he'd have got away with it. And that's one of those things about presumed kind of reliance upon the ev evidence in the landscape. And of course, you're absolutely right. There is a fear that, that we're reliant entirely upon DNA to solve the case. The reality is in UK crime cases, and murders are only a fraction, DNA is only used in about 2% of cases. Why would you use it? You know, because it's too expensive. So they use it for... Um, uh, murder cases and violence and maybe big theft cases, but in the totality of, of crimes from the magistrate's court to the more serious which appear in the, in the, the crown court over here, very uh, very few cases actually use that, you know, all the evidence is gathered, so if they need it, yes, but they wouldn't send uh, per se every item off for DNA testing at all, you know, but obviously with murders and all of that stuff, you'd imagine, yeah, yes, they would, uh, they would. So, uh, yeah, no, it's a very interesting point to raise. In the first episode of Killer Evidence, you mentioned how you think AI might eventually be able to take over some functions in the analysis of certain types of evidence. Can you talk a bit more about some of the other roles you foresee AI being helpful with in criminal investigations in the future? But well, I think we already we started off with kind of uh, automatic number plate recognition, right? And then uh, I'm reminded that basically that that when officers are given CCTV, like currently, and they're you know and trained officers, they're go they're working their way through. Like so, let's go through somebody in a major city. They're going through. There might be 140 cameras, 200 cameras. Somebody's got to process all of those, right? In a in a very in a in a in a time slot and work their way out and see it. And it's a very difficult and time consuming. Uh, first, of all, it takes. So for each, to my mind, because I have done this myself on my own evidence that I've gathered undercover. That you know, in order for you to 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 log the material, and then to go through it and forensically examine it. So to examine one hour of material for, you know, forensically and to an evidential standard, it probably takes about six hours. 
So now we understand that, you know, with ChatGPT4 and uh, and then if you're working with, with these companies, AI companies, you would work with your own programs, you would quite, I think, quite predictably be able to put in your parameters into a program with ChatGPT4 or equivalent. And that all that work would be done practically instantaneously, you know, and you would say this person here and they would try. So that problem is solved in an instant. And so now I can imagine this, I can imagine, um, uh, I would be surprised if it's not being done on the side right now, that people say, here is the list of suspects. Here's what we know about them. Um, there's the social media accounts. Go chat GPT and see who you think is most likely. I can see it's, you know, at the moment, there. I'm sure there are uh, guys in Quantico and there are guys in that's in the FBI headquarters in the US. I'm quite sure that they're playing a parlor game with ChatGPT and developing that into tools as we speak. More interestingly, I think, in relation to uh, the other era, uh, I mean, they're now, in terms of committing a crime and how to, com- you know, this other parlor game, how to commit the perfect murder. Um, if you're the the people who really know how to commit a perfect murder are those who, are, who we call our non-apprehended offenders, i.e. the people who got away with it. They're the people who know. And people who've been involved in that kind of arena, um, they nowadays, with the proliferation of cameras and digital technology and lives, it's very, very difficult not to leave a trace. But just sometimes, and mostly, if people get away with murder, it's because they're very, very lucky. Something falls down something happens. I did speak to one criminal recently, and uh, he said he was uh, involved in a in, in difficult crime scene about 30 years ago, and he said this guy was, they had some beef, this guy was going to take him out. And uh, so um, he said, I'm going to do so, I'm going to take him out before he does. And so he spent one day casing him out and thought it'd be all good. And he knew because he had beef with this particular guy that the police would come knocking on his door as a likely suspect. But he had an alibi. So he had his car at home. He was there and uh, he snuck out the back, took another vehicle and went there. So in the first day he went there to the guy's house, the, the, the target wasn't present. The second day he went there, and as he arrived, he was arriving up there, he saw all these police activity out there, and um, somebody else had got to him first and killed him. And to his, to my friend's mind, that was the perfect murder. He went to, he went to kill him, but somebody else got there first, and okay. was like, okay, man, yeah, fine. You know, so uh, uh, it's very difficult to commit the perfect murder, but nowadays they will be able to, in, in the future, within 10 years, if you go into a room and breathe, your DNA will be there, right? If you go, you know, the the um, the identity—it's—it's it's so microscopic. Um, the you know, and what we leave, and and even um, our smell. Everybody smells and odor is so distinctive um, mm-hmm. that I'm sure in ten years, just a mere breath in a room will be able to locate somebody in that room. So that's getting very, very, uh, very, very, uh, you know, very exciting. So. The, the the prospect of committing a murder and getting away with it in highly developed countries with highly developed kind of and, and not on where violence is on the scale as it is in South Africa, but in say in the UK and in America uh, outside of gangland violence, the 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 likelihood of getting away with it is kind of increasingly slim, you know. But uh, 
No, it's a fascinating area where chat GBT and science will go. Listening to you tell that story, do you think that the undercover reporting work you did has given you a different perspective of criminals and crime in general? Do you feel like you've maybe witnessed the underbelly that we all view from a removed place firsthand? Well, when I went undercover in the drug gangs in Nottingham and, you know, and the drug dealers there were earning, this was in 19, how uh, they were earning like £350,000 a week. Like this is like this is then cash profit, and one of them told Wayne Hardy, and uh, and you know I got to know him. I got a job on the back. Took me nine months to get a job as a bouncer and curry his favor and bring and I became his gym buddy. And we it was a, if you're an undercover copper, you'd be expecting results very quickly. But if you're an undercover copper, you would have two people around you supporting you. I was there in the city all by myself, so it was kind of reckless uh, of my employers to put me in that position. But as it happened, I came out safe. But I got to know him as a person, as a friend, but my job was to basically, in television terms, convict him for a drug dealer, which I did. Like, uh, but I did get, but subsequently I came back and revisited him. And, and although he got time in jail for other crimes, but uh, uh, he was made notorious in front of kind of nine million viewers. That was the kind of ratings we had back in the day. And we did a two-part series called Wayne's World and The Untouchables. And he, um, I befriended him and he came back. We did a film together. And the film where he presented himself, yes, in his arena, he was incredibly entrepreneurial. If he was middle class, he'd be a share dealer and make loads of money. And in fact, he has spent some time in South Africa, was deported from South Africa. But he was a lovely guy and he was, but, but, and would have had a nasty side to him, but I saw the human quality to him. And I think living cheek by jowl with these criminals over long term, infiltrative, immersive, uh, uh, kind of, and you're buried in the world rather than jumping in for a day or being, you know, meeting them in prison as you would as a criminologist uh, or as a, a forensic psychologist or, or even prison governor. Um, no, it was fascinating. So you get to see a more rounded uh, pro, um, uh, kind of kind of perspective uh, perspective on them. And I must admit, when he, when I we did a show together, he told me that you know about the tra- when he was in prison, you know, his first. Uh, his partner committed suicide and took their their his firstborn child at the same time in this terrible tragedy. His his brother died, you know, just accidentally. But his daughter became a fourteen year old daughter as a drug dealer became a crack addict, and he he worked with her. And so, you know, it's not without tra- tragedy, uh, and it's not for not entirely that reason why some of these people end up um, in in crime. But I've always tried to look and expand so it wasn't just a job of right okay i went undercover in this guy's world we trained together became best mates and then after nine months or ten months i said oh hi by the way you knew me as tony and he's looking at me and as a tv crew i am in fact donald McEnroe, world of action reporter what and it's like and you can just imagine the face went white and to his credit he didn't react violently but then very quickly he went off with uh, another colleague of his to try and kill me i've subsequently befriended uh, is other colleague who now works in, in the uh, uh, criminal justice system and as a social entrepreneur repairing the lives of young criminals. So if you're keeping your eyes open and understand, see people beyond their crimes, I'm not apologizing for the crimes or excusing it, but I do think the way to try and, uh, as our you know uh, CBS justice audience does and as our audience and, uh, and our true crime audience does, it's not just a visceral 
raw you know interest uh in this world of true crime they i've noticed the true crime audience become much more sophisticated like me as an individual they want to know more they want to understand more it no longer is just saying two legs bad four legs good or you know in the um uh or in that sense the aurelian sense it is much they want to understand why how where what are the antecedents what are the proceedings and also you know how can we help prevent that in the first instance, the drive is to get justice for the victim and the victim's fine, to hold them accountable. And then the next step has to be to understand and and perhaps reclaim and then prevent further instances uh, of that. And interesting, in murders here in the UK, um, where there is a real where, where for example, where, for example, the state could have done better if they released the prisoner and he committed murder uh, or if there was a police failure or institutional failure. There's a thing called an Article 2 inquest where they can have a longstanding inquest, which is dedicated not only to finding out how someone died, why they died, but also what lessons can be learned. And I think that, you know, in many ways, the viewer, the true crime viewer, the CBS Justice and uh, viewer is interested in that kind of article two kind of analysis. They want to know, um, you know, how, why, and also what can be done. And I think they get, a, a, I think they, they do get a, a, a kind of boost when they know that uh, that additional le- layer is given to a program or an investigation, you know, that, you know, the how, why, but also how we can prevent this in future. I don't want to give too much away about the series before viewers watch it, but in that first episode, you mentioned that the offender having pled guilty served his psychopathic need to boast about his crimes. This desire for attention is often clear in serial offenders with psychopathic tendencies during trials. But why do you think that this offender would have preferred to admit his crimes rather than having the full experience, so to speak, of hearing months of evidence about his crimes, as well as all the attention that that would have brought him? I think it's about control and power. And that is that he had no control over whether he's going to be convicted. He likely would do. But then the victory would have been given to the jury and to the police and the prosecutors. Right. In this case, he was a, had the, he had the uh, power of surprise you know, and control. I decide. I'm the man who decides who's guilty, who's not. I'm the person. So that's that was his matrix. You know, so he was a performer and a performer always knows it's not how long you're on screen. It's the punch. You know, it really is this. It's, 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 it's the smack crackle and uh, um, uh, of, of a single moment, which makes you the star. So if it had been a long drawn out process, you know, he got a conviction as everyone expected, you know, where was his moment? His big moment is the moment where we're still talking about. To everybody's surprise, he pleaded guilty. And I think that was his effort at control. He was the he was now the master of ceremonies. And so he basically, you know, having set everybody else up for this kind of the jury, the judge, everybody for a long, drawn-out kind of um, courtroom. This wasn't a gift to the victims. This wasn't a gift to the budgets of the criminal justice system. This was absolutely a kind of ownership of control and power and a performance. I'm in charge. And like I was during the execution of these murders, I remain the ringmaster.
Jackie Moulton. I was incredibly privileged to be able to interview Jackie Moulton recently. As one of the first women to ever join London's Notorious Flying Squad and one of the youngest detective inspectors ever at 25 years old, Jackie retired from the service with honour and now spends her days consulting to TV crime shows and working with offenders with substance use disorders in prisons across the UK. She is one of those pioneering women that I seriously look up to, and I think I grinned like a weirdo for the entire interview. So without further ado, here is my interview with Jackie Moulton. You've said that asking why after a crime is committed has led you to the real truth of many situations in your career. I thought that was quite interesting because as a police officer, you wouldn't necessarily need to know why to do your job. You just need to know who and how. Are you able to share some ways that you think that curiosity about the roots of a crime has helped you in your career? So the police said to me, they're not interested in the whys and the wherefores if you just said that. And that did they or didn't they? And it was about evidence. But everything is in context, I think. And I think the context is important. And when I kind of was more experienced, I could often put the context in a what we would call a report to the CPS or report to the solicitor's department, et cetera, et cetera. So it doesn't make any difference what they've done at all. But I think it's all about, not in every circumstances, you can't say to an armed robber, why did you do it? That's a bit pointless. (laughs) But where there were more, where there were crimes whereby, I remember this guy who uh, was arrested for taking a bank manager hostage in Oxford Street, uh, Oxford Street, centre of London, in the West End. And he'd taken him hostage with a he was an engineer and he he made this hand grenade that looked really, really, well, it looked real. It didn't look an imitation. And the bank manager kind of feigned illness. And as he kind of feigned illness, he bent down and he pressed the emergency button and the man was arrested. So then he said, "What? Well, why was the reason? And he'd been given a overdraft by this particular bank. And the bank had just, for his business, and the bank for some reason had just withdrawn it. And it absolutely ruined him. And he was so frustrated that in his outrage, which is not a clever thing to do at all, <laughs> that he took the bank, a bank manager hostage in protest type of thing. And I think sometimes you have to put that in context as to the reasons why. Because if you didn't, you know, then there's no story and there's no story for the judge and I did say to the judge I didn't think this man had ever re-offend and he you know he hasn't as far as I know he's re-offended so I think sometimes I remember the judge saying that it was gratifying he said to hear a police officer say talk about the narrative the story and so I just sometimes think where it's appropriate that you should ask the whys and the wherefores and also the whys and the wherefores as a society helps us understand other people, stand in their shoes for a little bit, etc. So I'm in a prison now and I listen to the whys and the wherefores, sorry about that, the whys and the wherefores all the time. And, you know, many of them adverse childhood experiences. So it was my professional curiosity. The other thing that's really important is that if you engage in them in a way that is mutual, then they will be willing to talk to you and often reveal 
So just to clarify, when Jackie says, I'm in prison now, she means working in a prison, not incarcerated in one. Back to the interview. I found it interesting that you hadn't excelled at school the same way as your siblings, but once you joined the police service and found something you were passionate about, you really started to show your true potential. I've seen that with many other successful professionals too. Do you think that experience made you see people you encountered in law enforcement differently? Maybe as though if they'd only found their purpose, their potential may not have been misused in criminality. Yeah, absolutely. So I was a bit of a fighter for the underdog. <laughs> and and I think, you know, we had in this country an exam called 11 plus, which you, you're, you're destined, your life is destined at age 11, which way you will go, you pass or you'll fail. I mean, I did further education later on. And I rectified it. But the point about it all is at that time, there is a kind of, there's a judgment value. And and everybody has a story. All of us have a story. Every one of us has a narrative to our lives. And I think that's really important. So, yeah, it did. Because you can, you can identify and you could have some form of understanding and a bit of empathy. Empathy is huge, I think. It, it's really really huge and I found it important to be I don't mean I'm a soft touch because I wasn't a soft touch I was a tough cookie but you know I just the empathy to me is I'm naturally empathic so it it was just to enable often to be empathic for them to open up and talk to you and and you would get honestly you would get confessions that way you'd get confessions to the crime by being empathic And that's something we discuss in the podcast quite a bit, is understanding offender behavior, not to excuse it, but to understand so that we can try and help others. Yeah, so if you listen to adverse childhood experiences that are not dealt with as youngsters, then what basically happens is they grow up with what you call an arrested development. And now they're in a, a male body and female you know, but both sexes, of course, and they're still acting, reacting as that child, you know, which is in the sense of their emotions, their behaviours are childlike in many, many ways because it's we, nobody's dealt with those issues. So that's what we do in prison is to deal with those issues and those are the things that I really enjoy mostly, m- most of it, I mean, all of it, the, talking to them and getting them to kind of, you know, own up about the childhood. And of course, they never see any of that themselves, never see any of it. So much of your early life and career was spent trying to simultaneously be yourself while also trying to belong. And I found it so interesting how when you admitted your alcohol addiction and contacted the guy from AA, you said to him, I think I'm one of you. Do you think you found a sense of community within people in Alcoholics Anonymous that you maybe struggle to find elsewhere? Well, what you do is you find a sense of community because it's about understanding another person that everybody, you know, as I said many times, nobody has an ambition to be an alcoholic because it's mental torture. Absolutely not. And and I've been there 30 years. I've heard thousands of stories and and, and things, but it is about identification with what the alcohol did for the individual, which feels 
all of them say that they were kind of riddled by fear, insecurity, vulnerability. Everyone says that, including men. And they felt this hole in the soul. So what is common denominator was the feeling of the hole in the soul. And then when the alcohol went down the throat, it kind of, you know, it joined the dots. And it was a really nice feeling that it was just one of comfort. And then, of course, what, again, what alcoholics, including myself, were trying to anchor myself externally. When you try and anchor yourself with a sense of belonging externally, then you do lose yourself because you have to anchor yourself internally. And the, and the recovery program teaches you, and through your own experience and through the work that you do on yourself, you know, why was I shameful? Why did I feel like this? What's my part in it, etc. And, of course, the learned behaviours of your thinking. So we think and it becomes like a habit of your thought processes and stuff. So in recovery, you have to look at the thought processes, start to change those thought processes, you know, and and really start to work on yourself in order to validate yourself. So the anchoring, again, sense of belonging, is not external. It has to be internal. Um, and then I can, of course, have my friends externally and all of that type of thing. But people, what people thought of me, my validation, external validation, cannot come from, come externally. I have to have my own sense of self. And uh, for many, many addicts, they lose that. They have lost the sense of self. And along the way, for whatever reasons, you know, it, it's a, a you get peace and you just it, it, it's peace with yourself. You know, because and also the other thing is that you live your life in a way within your own moral compass and your own integrity and your own authentic self. So, you know, I mean, we're not saints. Of course, we're not saints. And it would be ridiculous to suggest that. But for the majority of your kind of life, the way that you feel about yourself, you know, is good. And if you snap at somebody or I don't know, whatever it might be. You, or you have a thought about somebody and you think, well, where does that thought come from? And it's normally would come from something within yourself. So you can manage your own thoughts on a daily basis, have a reflective, you know, process. And it just feels so good to live your life like that, other, 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 apart from worrying, you know, if you're worried about what other people thought of you all the time which I did, by the way, I did, against myself, you know. And then if the boss wanted to see me, tell me on a Friday, see you Monday, I think, oh, we can. Well, what does he want to see me do? You know, it would all be negative and stuff like that. And I know that in my life today, most of the time, not all of the time, you know, I live within my own integrity. And if I breach that, then I will apologise, you know, to say I will kind of look at it and if – I upset you, for example, then I'd say I'm really sorry about that. I own it and that's it. So, so just a it's kind of oh, I don't know. It's just a nice, nice way to live your life. Mm. And you don't have, you know, like if, if you're with somebody and they're quite negative about other people and moaning and groaning, it's quite it becomes so toxic. And do you know what? I can't be in that company for long. I just can't. And you kind of go, oh, I don't want to live my life like that. I want to live my life how my dog, what my, what my dog thinks I am. And my dog loves me unconditionally. And that's how I want to be with my friends and stuff. 
How much has admitting and working through your own substance use issues helped you to better understand the offenders you've worked with, if at all? Oh, no, I only work with offenders with substance issues. So, yeah, the identification is there all, all the time. I'll just give you a little example. There's a guy I've been working with for, well, there's two. There's one that's just been released. He called me the other day and I knew he was being released, although he didn't know when. And he, he was in for domestic violence. And he, he'd been convicted twice and had prison sentences for domestic violence on partners, et cetera, et cetera. But he believes he's a nice guy. He believes, you know, that's not me. That's not really who I am. And I said, well, you know, and I'm quite tough with him. You're sitting in prison because you've abused women. You know, let's kind of look at that and looked at his control issues and stuff like that. And I really honed in on him and he didn't like it. He didn't like it because he couldn't believe he was that person. And it, and again, it's the rationale, isn't it? You know, I'm not that kind of person. His whole behaviour in all of his life was control, even his work. So anyway, it's a very long story short. He came to me and said, you're absolutely right. Yeah, I've got it. I can see with clarity, you know, my part in it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And there's another one I mentor. It's a double life. He killed two people in a 10-day binge. Uh, uh, my other one, he didn't kill anyone. He assaulted his partners. But this other one, he killed two people in a 10-day binge of, of addiction. So he served 32 years in prison. And then he'd been released about two or three times. He kept picking up a drink, relapsed, and he'd get recall. So we had to look at these issues, et cetera, et cetera. And I've been with him now for, oh, I don't know, got to be five or six years. And he's just been just been released into the community but I know he won't pick up a drink I know that he well I don't know but I'm, I don't think he will I don't think he will because we've looked at those issues as to why he would pick up a drink and that often in relationships there is often in his case he was a rescuer and then there's another thing in addiction so excuse me saying it but addicts will have what they call a fuck it button and, you know, they might get into some form of, I don't know, a little row or something at home with their partner. And then, you know, they get to a point and they go, fuck it, go down the pub. And, you know, yeah. it's it, it's a game for everyone. And then, of course, it gets recalled. So you've got to manage and learn to manage that fuck it button. It's vital to identify that because when you do, then you can be aware when you start to get to that point and choose something else. Exactly, because it's a habit. You see, the other thing is also what's quite interesting about habits, when you ask people who are non-alcoholics or addicts where they don't have much sympathy for the addicts and alcoholics, you say to them, right, on New Year's Eve, when you make your New Year resolution, how long does it last? And, of course, they go, oh, well, three weeks, three days, three months, and that's about it because it's a habit. It's an absolute habit, and you have to change the neural pathways in your brain, and that takes work, etc. So those that you just kind of think, well, hold the mirror up to yourself because, you know, addiction is a habit of the solution to the problems that they're facing. Because they're not working it through, they're not working themselves through, and that's when they press the fuck it button. And at the point, they say, actually, we've got to go beyond that, work that through, let's go beyond that. What else can you do, et cetera? 
But, you know, New Year's resolution, they go, oh, well, yeah, you know, within three months, it's raining outside, the football's on the TV, and they go, oh, fuck it, I'm not going to go gonna go to the gym. <laughs> it's the same process. Tell me about your transition after retiring to working in television as a script consultant. Those are two very different worlds. What was that like for you? Uh, well, I'd already had, obviously, a bit of experience with working with a scriptwriter because um, I'd helped Linda LaPlante with Prime Suspect, you know, some six, seven years earlier. Mm. So then I worked on Prime Suspect 1, 2, and 3, and then other people within the media asked if I could give advice to to them on programme. So I then told the Metropolitan Police that that's what I was doing and et cetera. So you have to inform them. So it, because of Prime Suspect, then I got a bit of a name for myself and then people wanted the authenticity. So that's what happened. Now, after you leave the police, policing changes very, very quickly, you know, procedures, processes, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm out of it now and I'm not in it in the sense of understanding what's being changed. So I then transitioned, not intentionally, but it happened to come my way. Somebody asked me to get involved in a documentary. And then that has taken off massively in terms of documentary work, which I much prefer, to be perfectly honest. Because mm-hmm. I mean, and, and it was the first time that they'd had one cop, ex-cop, talking to other ex-cops about some very high-profile crimes that people had dealt with so that was how it worked and then that's kind of carrying on for me at the minute so I'm very very happy to do that because I'm very interested in the truth and the facts and yeah and also have the ability because because you do understand because you've been an ex-cop when you talk to other ex-cops you have much more layers of depth and nuances and they always said to me it's much better talking to you because you get it as opposed to a non-police person. There's no doubt that you faced a tidal wave of discrimination during your time in the police service, and you've been described as almost a chameleon who needed to adjust to the environment to try and fit in. I wonder how much of you as a person was shaped by that forced fitting in, and do you think that you eventually managed to find your way back to who Jackie may have been without being a police officer, or is it all ingrained in you? No, probably not. I think what happens is that all of those things that affect, affect well, let's let's take that question, peel it back a bit. Who knows what would have happened if I hadn't been a police officer, but everything that has happened to me because I was a police officer and because of other stuff has made me the person that I am. So I'm very grateful for the journey, however horrible it might have been on occasions throughout so that's made me Jackie the addiction has made me Jackie the all of that kind of stuff so when you're you know nobody's born an addict aren't they and nobody's born you know you're not born an addict or you don't you're not born feeling less than (laughs) all these things that happen to you and now when, when when you said I was chameleon there's a sense of Wanting to belong and fitting in, that's absolutely right. But the, I think my difference there was that I i still spoke out, even though I wanted to belong. So there was the dichotomy and there was the incongruence. So that was the uncomfortable feeling. 
So I spoke out, but I wanted to belong. And the two don't go together. And that's mm-hmm. how it, that's what happened. Or the discomfort, absolute discomfort. And if I was a chameleon and wanting to belong, then I've said nothing. But throughout my career, I've always spoken out about all sorts of things. Now, this is not so much a question as a statement, and I'm sure it didn't feel like it at the time. But I was thinking that there's probably no more validating statement for a woman than we don't know what to do with you. You've got to be doing something right when people say that. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. They didn't know what to do with it because the majority of the men in those days did not want an operational female in the mainstream because we had been in the, uh, you know, in the stream of police women hierarchy. Now we're opened up to the mainstream and then they didn't want, they didn't know what to do with me. So, you know, the thing is, he did me a favour. He did me a favour. So that was, that was good. You often used sex workers as informants and forged bonds with them. Do you feel like your gender assisted you in doing that? I can only think that these women would not have been nearly as comfortable with a male officer. Absolutely, definitely that helped. And you know what? I always remember some of those sex workers, as we call them now, but we called them prostitutes at the time, that if you had a missing girl, a young girl, 14, from the care system, let's say, they're often from, you know, do you understand about the care system? They've been put in care. Yeah, so, and they've gone run, missing from home. Or, sorry, missing from the care centre. I don't always go and speak to the girls. And I remember one girl lady saying to me, you know, come back in half an hour, Jackie, and I'll have her. But I'll, I'll have her here. And the reason for it was they're saying, I don't want this kid to end up like me. And there was lots and lots of poverty way back in the 70s. There was women with single mums. They had a pimp that was working them, et cetera, et cetera. And the whole setup was well where a woman did not have her own voice. And and again, what really annoyed me at the time, it was an it was an act committed by two people, a man and a woman. The only legislation that was in play was under the Street Offences Act, which was against the women. So the women got nicked for loitering for the purpose or soliciting for the purpose of prostitution. And the men just nothing happened to them and it was always that kind of thing well hold on a minute there's two people here and if the men didn't drive around you see what I mean or the women weren't on the streets but it was very very one-sided and very judgmental and some of those women my heart went out to them because they lived in abject poverty you know oh it was just awful and the only way that they thought they could do something to get money for their kids or rent or anything was to work the streets and yeah I had a lot a lot of time for them I really did and I never judged them I never judged them so yeah I, I, I and in and in the process I used to kind of inadvertently give me lots of information but it, that wasn't the reason yeah. my reason was genuine absolutely genuine to yeah it was had a lot of time for them i do hope you enjoyed your bonus episode for this week of the festive season i'll be back in your feed later this week with episode 140 until then thank you for your support and i'll chat to you soon
a healthier, happier, more productive life starts with good sleep. Make sure you invest in the right bed. Dial-A-Bed stocks the best bed brands at the best prices. Shop at 76 stores nationwide or online.